Good morning. Greetings in Christ's name. Robert uh, did a good job of laying a foundation for the message. This morning I'd actually like to speak from the book of Job. Um, I've entitled the message uh, A Book of Ancient Truth. And the this morning, so, so when we, normally when we speak from the book of Job, you think of a, of a message on patience, right? And rightly so, because that's a primary theme of the book of Job. It talks about a man, as, as Robert uh, alluded to earlier this morning, it talks about a man who is known by God and by the devil. And God talks about Job and he says, have you met, have you seen my servant Job and what he's doing? And God was able to brag a little bit and get into a contest of wills with Satan and God had confidence in Job, and Job didn't let him down. That's the primary theme. But we're going to talk about something a little bit different in regard to the book of Job. I'd like to begin by turning to the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Now, you're probably all familiar with what we call apologetics, right? The idea of apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means speech in defense of. So... You know, this is the word from which the word apology comes. So we, when we think of apologies, we think of admitting wrong. And that's speaking in defense of truth when we ourselves are in the wrong. But it also has a different aspect. It means speaking up in defense of something. And in the, in the case of Christian apologetics, we're speaking up in defense of truth. And we're saying, this is right and this is true. You know, this morning we opened the book of, uh, opened the word of the Lord and and Robert spoke from that word, and we took that as truth, and rightly so. But why do we take it as truth? How do we know the Quran's not true, or, or the Buddhist writings are not true, or the Hindu writings are not true? Well, there's many reasons that we don't, but we want to look at some of those reasons this morning, and some of them come from the book of Job. God gave Job special insight because of his loyalty to God, and we'll see some of the things that Job said. But first, let's read from Genesis chapter 10. Now, this is starting at verse 21. This is uh, a short genealogy. And genealogies are not very interesting, but I want you to pay close attention to what this says. It says, unto Shem also. Who is Shem? He was the son of Noah, right? He was the righteous son of Noah. The father of all the children of Eber, the father of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz, and Hui, and Gether, and Mash, and Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days were the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almadad, and Shiluf, and Hazarmaveth, and Jerah, and Hadadron, and Uzal, and Dekla, and Obal, and Ebamol, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jabeb. All these were the sons of Jactan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as I go unto Sefer, a mount of the east. Now, why is this interesting? We have this man who's a descendant of Shem, and he has a lot of children, a lot of boys. Look at all the boys he named, he named here. Well, one of these boys was named Jobab. And it is believed that that was the Job that's referred to in the book of Job. 
And it's interesting because this comes from a Hebrew word, uh, Yovav, which means a desert. It's not a pretty name. Job's name meant a desert, a barren place. And in some respects, that's what happened to Job. He went through a very barren, dark period. And I don't know how these people pick their names. I've, I've often wondered how this worked. Very often in the Old Testament, you find a name reflecting the character of the person. How did they do that? Did they name the child at birth and somehow God gave them knowledge of the future, perhaps? I don't know. But in any case, that's, that's what happened. Now, the, the word Job itself, which comes from, is, is a derivative of this word Jobab, means hated. So, literally, Job's name meant a desert or a hated place. Now, notice the placement of Job here. Shem was the father of Arphaxad. And Arphaxad was the father of Selah. Selah was the father of Eber. Eber was the father of Joktan. And Joktan was the father of Jobab, or Job. So, Shem was the great, great, great grandfather of Job. If indeed this was Job, and we, we believe that it was. Now, why is that important? Well, when you go to Genesis chapter 11, we won't turn to that, but there you find the, the, the genealogy and the lineage of Abraham. Abraham also descended from Shem, though he came not from Arphaxad, but from Peleg. And if you trace the lineage of Abraham, Abraham was six generations away from Eber, whereas Job was only two generations away. That means that Job was much older and occurred much earlier than Abraham. And indeed, what we find in the book of Job is consistent with that because the, the language that the book of Job was written in is so ancient. The Hebrew is so ancient that they had difficulty uh, interpreting it and translating it. There were some words that they just they weren't quite sure what those words meant, but they could tell by the context. So, what does this mean? This means that the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible next to parts of the book of Genesis. An ancient book. A very old book. And you might ask, well, why is that important? Well, you'll see as we carry on with this discussion, that becomes very important later on in the discussion. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from the book of Job, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1. We all know the story. We know the setting. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the story itself. We know very well, you know, we talk about the patience of Job, right? My dad once told me that to be a good father takes the patience of Job and the wisdom of Solomon. And I think that's probably true. I'm reflecting back on what Robert said. But let's read from chapter 1. And notice the integrity of Job. Job was a man of integrity. It says there was a man in the land of Uz. By the way, this is probably what was later known as the land of Moab, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, 
and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting was gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now notice the setting here. This man was a, a descendant of Shem, the son of uh, Noah, who was the godly son and who led his people in the right way. He was a man who came from a background and from a lineage of scriptural truth and teaching and a belief in God. They didn't have much scripture at that time. Again, the book of Job was one of the first written. But they had God and they had his word. And they, had, they recorded it as time went on, and they shared it. But he was also very, very wealthy. It says he was one of the greatest men in the East, or was the greatest man in the East. And I'm not sure what all they mean by exactly when, when the East is described, but it was a large area, probably in the Mesopotamian area, where Job was known as a great and wealthy man. Now, you know the old saying that Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that. In other words, the idea is that if you concentrate too much power or too much wealth in the hands of one person, he can become very corrupt. But that didn't happen to Job. Job was a man of integrity. He had tremendous, uh, abundant, had an abundance of possessions, but he owned his possessions. They didn't own him. His focus was on something else. He had a large family, and he was concerned about his children. Born in him seven sons and three daughters. So he had ten children. And he cared about them. Every day he would pray for them. And he said, maybe they'll curse God in their hearts. Maybe they'll do something wrong. So he offered sacrifices on their behalf. His focus was on a godly lineage. No wonder God had confidence in him. He was a man of great integrity. Now let's read... In from verse 6 on to verse 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, <laughs> Doth God, or doth, doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? And hast blessed the work of his, of his hands and his substance is increased in the land? But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord. Satan's a liar. Satan had misplaced confidence in himself, as he always has. And Satan was wrong. And God proved him wrong. Now, we see here something very interesting. That Job was a man of God who was entrusted by God. He was a man who ordered his life, 
according to the direction of God. And because of that, God revealed truth in the book of Job that is almost astounding. Now, one of the things that the secularists will tell you is that the Word of God was developed, what we call the Word of God, evolved over time. And so these were just men who wrote down all these things. And because they wrote down all these things, they slowly changed their mind about God. And and so they'll they'll point to things like, for example, the... uh, the scriptures that were David talked about, my help coming from the hills. And he's talking about looking to God, looking out to the hills. And he's not talking about the fact that he believes God was a God of the hills. But they'll tell you that. I heard this in college. God is supposed to be a God of the hills. And so they say, the people of Israel believed that God was a God of the hills like all the heathen did. And the heathen believed that their God was a God of the sea or the God of the mountains, or the God of the valley. And so, you know, if they wanted to fight, they picked a fight in the area where their God was supposedly strong. And they say, well, you see, the Hebrews thought their God was the God of the hills, and then over time developed this idea that he was the God of the universe. But we all know that's not true. If you look at the scriptures at all, you see that right from the beginning, God said he created the heavens and the earth. He made it clear that he was the God of the universe. And yet, they say this. And so, when you look at the book of Job, you start seeing that there are truths embedded in this book, this old, old, ancient book, that are consistent, very consistent, with truths in the New Testament. And let's look at some of that. First of all, we see the truth that Satan was a created being. You see that, that Satan is spoken of as, a, as, as, as someone who is in the assembly of the sons of God. Well, the sons of God were those members of the angelic tribe that were tasked with doing God's work. And Satan showed up because he had been a member of that tribe. He had been one of those. And the Old Testament teaches us that. The New Testament teaches us that as well. That Satan is a created being. Now, what does that mean? It means that Satan is a counterpart of God in terms of character. But he is not a counterpart of God in terms of position. And sometimes we, th- we get those things confused. We conflate those two truths because we think of Satan as very, very powerful over here on the left. And God is very, very powerful over here on the right. And then there's this battle between them. And, you know, that battle hangs in the balance. But it doesn't really. It's more like this. God is over here on the right. Satan is down here on the left. They are not on a par in terms of equality of power so satan is god's counterpart in terms of character but not in terms of position and it's important that we understand that because that means that the battle is already won the only place the battle is still truly raging is in the hearts of men and women and so it's there's a question as to where I will go and what will happen to me, but there's no question about where the universe will go and what will happen to it. That battle is already won. And, and I think we need to keep that in mind. We really need to keep that in mind because Satan tries to overwhelm us. We look around us in the culture today and we see a culture that is so evil and, and truth is so suppressed. And as time goes on, it's more and more suppressed. And we sometimes we feel like a little mouse that has to shrink back in the corner. But we shouldn't be. 
We should be a bold lion that roars out in the open and says, this is true, and I'm not afraid to proclaim it because my God has won this battle, and he is the Lord of the universe, and he alone. Amen. <clears throat> Satan showed up in this assembly. I doubt he was invited, but he showed up, and God allowed him to be there, perhaps because of his former position. I'm not certain. But he was there. And we see immediately as God begins talking to Satan, we see another truth that's presented throughout Scripture. Satan is not omnipresent. God said, where, where have you been? Well, I've been walking to and fro on the earth and going up and down in it, he said. So he moves around. He's not everywhere all the time. God is. God is omnipresent. That means that God doesn't go here or go there because He's already there. God is everywhere. God is in the heavens. God is on earth. David said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. He meant in the world of the dead. God is present everywhere because He's omnipresent. He's omnipresent, He's omniscient, and He's omnipotent. That means He's everywhere at once. He has all power and He knows everything. Only God can claim those attributes. Satan cannot. So Satan is sometimes, if, if, are you familiar with the word ubiquitous? Ubiquitous means you find it every place. You find, you find it just everywhere. Like, for example, uh, you might say that cats are ubiquitous. No matter where you go in the world, you see cats. But cats are not omnipresent. They're not everywhere at the same time. Satan and his minions are, I guess you could use the word ubiquitous. They're all over the place. You run into them all the time. But Satan is not everywhere all the time. His, his demons are all around, but Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent, and he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. It doesn't talk about that in the book of Job. But we know that he doesn't know everything because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that basically Satan didn't understand what he was doing when he crucified Christ. Because had he known it, he wouldn't have done it. Because he unwittingly played a part in the salvation of man by raging at and crucifying Jesus. So there's that truth in the book of Job. It's there from the beginning. That's not a truth that evolved over time. It was there from the beginning. Satan knew who Job was. He tried to get to him. And there's another truth. We know that... Satan cannot go wherever he wants to go. Job talked about, or I'm sorry, uh, Satan talked, Satan complained about the hedge that God had placed around Job. So coming from the enemy himself, I can't get to him. You won't let me at him. What does that tell us? There's a hedge about his people. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. There's another truth that's embedded in this precious book. It's true that God has His angels encamped around us and we need not be afraid. Job was not a pawn. You know, sometimes people have looked at the book of Job and they've said things like, well, is that what God does? Does He play with His children? Does He say, well, okay, I'll, I'll let you torture Him a little bit more and see if He breaks. Okay, try a little bit more. No. He was a trusted partner of God. God trusted him. And when Satan complained and he said, well, okay, I took everything he had, he still didn't break, but let me get at him personally. 
God said, fine, go for it, but you can't kill him. You're not allowed to do that. And Satan and, and Job did not break. And I've, I've, I've looked at myself sometimes when I've read the book of Job, and I've asked myself, how much confidence does God have in me? Would he be willing to do that? Might he have? Would he be willing to say to, Job, to Satan, hast thou observed my servant Samson? Or would he say, better not do that. He might break. I mean, that's a challenge to us. It's not meant to belittle us. It's a challenge to us. God has confidence in his children. He trusts in them because they trust in him. Let's look at some other truths that, interestingly, are exposed in the Word of God or in, in the book of Job. Things that Job knew and understood. And it's, it's a marvel because some of these things were things that the ancient Hebrew writers did not fully understand. They didn't fully understand the idea of justification. Let's look in Job 13. We all, we all know what happened here. There were seven days, the Bible says, when Job and his friends just sat there and commiserated together. They, they didn't say anything. You know, and we fault these men, and God faulted them because they, they were completely wrong about Job. But I will say this for them. I've never sat down with one of my suffering friends for seven days and nights and just sat there and, and, and listened to them. Never done that. I don't know that I have the patience to do that. But they did it. And then there was a period of time, not sure how long it was, but there was a period of time when they dialogued and went back and forth. And Job's friends tried to convince him that, Job, you're not right with God. If you were, these things wouldn't, wouldn't be coming upon you. And Job would say, but I am right with God. I know I am. I have confidence that I'm where I should be. And they went back and forth. But in this process, in this process of talking back and forth, we see truth. First of all, Job 13 Verses 15 through 18. He said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. He trusted in the justification that comes from God. Now, that justification comes to us through Christ. In the Old Testament, it came through people looking forward to Christ. But this man, a great, great, great grandson of Shem, knew and understood that he could be justified before God. That was a truth that was established in the beginning. Remember what God said to um Adam and Eve, he said that you're, you're going to have a, a son who's going to rise up. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. His, bru his heel will be bruised, but he'll crush the head of the serpent. The truth of redemption through Christ was known and understood by God at that time from the foundation of the world. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't God saying, oh, what am I going to do with these guys? They're getting out of hand. I better send my son down. That was something that he knew from the beginning. Secondly, Job understood the need for a mediator. If you turn to Job 16, you'll find in verses 18 through 22, he says, O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. 
Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears into God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. And when a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. So he was talking, if you, if you read the entire book of Job, you'll see that in the chapters leading up to this, he was talking about his own failure and his own undoneness before God himself. Later on in the, in the book, he said, I, he said, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. And this is a righteous man saying this. Why did he say that? Because when he saw and understood the holiness of God, he understood his own undoneness. And leading up to this, he talks about that undoneness. And then he says in verse 21 of Job 16, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleaded for his neighbor. He understood the need for a mediator between himself and God. Who is that mediator? Christ. It's not Mother Mary or one of the disciples. It's Christ himself. He sitteth at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf. Robert talked about the goodness of our Father. And that's one of the good things about our Father that we should remember. And we don't know exactly the details of that dialogue between God and that advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we do know that he advocates, advocates on our behalf. He is a mediator who is there on our behalf. And in those moments when I don't measure up to what God really wants from me, he's there as a mediator. And he's there to help me and to plead for me on my behalf to God the Father. <clears throat> How did Job know these things? How did he understand these things? I'm not sure. Maybe it was just because of his daily walk with God. Those hours that he spent sacrificing and pleading on behalf of his children. You know, you don't talk to God without him talking back. When you, want, when you come to God with an open hand, He fills it. He gives you things that you didn't have before. And somehow God conveyed this truth to him. In Job 19, He said, Behold, I go forward, but He is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive Him. On the left hand, where He doth work, but I cannot behold Him. He hideth Himself on the right hand, that I cannot see Him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He understood the concept of being tried by God. He understood the idea that just because he suffered, that did not mean he was doing wrong. His friends tried to tell him that. They said, Job, nobody suffers unless they deserve it. You don't suffer unless God is punishing you. But Job understood that that's not always true. Sometimes we do suffer because of our own foolishness. You know, if I go out and get drunk, I'm going to have a hangover in the morning. I can't blame that on God. It's going to destroy my relationship with others. I can't blame that on God. Those are things I deserve. I brought them onto myself. If I live like a fool, I'm going to suffer the results of a fool. But there are times in the lives of those who follow God when they suffer tremendously, not because they've done it wrong, 
but because God wants to bring them closer to himself. Notice he said, I shall come forth as gold. How is gold? How is gold purified? By heating it. Silver is purified in the same way, bringing out the dross. Bringing out pure gold comes from the heat of adversity. And so we, as God's people, are going to suffer at times. And so what's important if you're suffering? Should you immediately say, well, i got to figure out whether this is because of my own sin or whether because God is trying to perfect me? I don't think it's so important that we know that as it is that we learn the lesson God is wanting to teach us. And I think the prayer that we should pray is, God, show me when I do wrong so I can repent. And Lord, show me the lessons you're conveying to me. Show me what you want me to learn by the things you allow into my life because I want to come forth as gold tried by the fire. I want to be a treasure to God. I want to be like Job was. And in order to do that, I have to be willing to suffer. Now, I don't, I don't like to suffer. I don't like it a bit. And if God says, how much do you want to suffer today? I'd say, not at all. I'd rather just have a nice, pleasant life. But the truth is, if I want to come forth as gold, I have to be tried with the fire. And Job understood that. Perhaps this last set of truths from Job 19 is the most astounding and the most profound truth that you find in the book of Job. He says, beginning in verse 19, I'm sorry, beginning in verse 25 of Job 19 through 27, notice what he says. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, when I was in college, I had a, a professor of history who challenged my faith. And one of the things that he claimed was that, these, that, that Jesus himself never taught the idea of a resurrection, which was very easy to disprove because Jesus often spoke of the resurrection. And he said that Jesus was a, a, a Jewish zealot who was crucified for fomenting rebellion against the Romans. And then his disciples turned him into a god afterward and claimed he had risen from the dead. Well, if you read the New Testament at all, you'll know that's not true. Jesus steadfastly proclaimed, and, and we debated with him, and I asked him, I said, okay, what about when the Sadducees came to Jesus? And they, they expressly did not believe in the resurrection. And they challenged him because of the fact that he proclaimed the resurrection. And he said that you call yourselves, you say your God is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, not dead. So it's, it's easy in the New Testament to disprove the idea that Jesus didn't teach that he believed in the resurrection. But what's perhaps more astounding is that Job understood that thousands of years before. Here he was in the throes of 
this sickness that was foisted on him by the devil himself. And in the middle of that, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Notice he called him my Redeemer, my Savior. Now, it didn't appear at the time that God was saving him from much of anything. But he was. And he understood that. And I believe that Job understood in his heart that the greatest thing from which God saves us is not circumstance, but sin. Jesus did not come just to save us from bad circumstances. He himself had some really bad circumstances, but he came to save us from our sin. And if you think about this truth, it is astonishing. I mean, think about what would happen if right here in this present world, all sin would suddenly be removed. Think of what that would do to the world. It wouldn't change our circumstances, and yet it would in a very real way. We could, we could close down all our prisons. We wouldn't need a military anymore because we wouldn't have to fight with each other. We wouldn't need, probably wouldn't need a police force. We wouldn't need all these reform schools. We wouldn't need all these, all the, all the things that are spinoffs of sin. I mean, it, I can't even begin to think about what that would do to the world. It would make the world heaven on earth except for the circumstances. So Job understood that. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And then he went on to say, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He understood that a Redeemer would return and would judge the world on what we call the last day. How did he know that? I don't know. Enoch knew that too. You know, in the book of Enoch, which we don't have anymore, but is referenced in the New Testament, it says that Enoch said that the Lord shall come with 10,000 of his saints. He's going to return. He's going to judge the world. And then he went on to say, and that, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's saying after I die and my body decays, I'm going to see God, not in, just in a spiritual sense, it's not just going to be my spirit before God. It's going to be my body. I'm going to be in my body seeing God. And that's consistent with New Testament teaching, isn't it? it tells us in First in First Thessalonians chapter uh, four that Jesus is going to return, and when He returns, He's going to bring His saints with Him, and then their bodies are going to be raised up, glorified, and reunited with their spirits, and then we're going to be with Jesus forever. In my flesh I shall seek it. How did Job know this? Well, somehow he knew in his communication with God. And then he went on to say, Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. The, the word reins that you see in the Old Testament means kidneys, interestingly enough. And it's used because just like we we talk about our heart in the Old Testament they often reference their kidneys in that same way and he said though you know even though my heart is consumed within me though my though my inner being is gone from this world yet I'm going to see God for myself that's a tremendous truth and it's and it's an exciting truth and it's one I want to close on because I just I just think that as 
followers of Christ in a dark world. And we can look back on a book like this and we can say in that time and in that place, this man already knew about the redemption of Christ. He didn't know the details, but he knew and understood the redemption of Christ and the concept of eternal life, living in glorified bodies, in the physical presence of God himself. That should excite us. Because it doesn't matter ultimately what happens to us here on earth. We're going to stand for truth as long as we can. We should. We should fight for what's right. But in the end, what matters is that I'm going to stand before Christ by his grace in a glorified body and be with him and with the Father and with his saints forever. Can you claim that promise for yourself this morning? By his grace, you can. And it can help you through the darkest and most difficult times. I just want to say praise God. Praise him for what he revealed to Job and praise him for what he will reveal to us as we daily interact with him. You know, there's the Bible makes it clear in, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, that our minds need transformation. Our hearts receive transformation at the time of the new birth, but our minds also need transformation. And that happens over time as we're exposed to his word. But that word of God will be meaningless without the prompting and direction of the Spirit. Yes, the key that opens those truths to us. Jesus said that his spirit will lead us to all truth. So it makes it clear that we're going to understand truth under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But as he unlocks those truths to us and we feast on that word of God, our minds are going to be transformed. We're going to change over time and become more and more like him. And so Job understood that. He understood the importance of spending time with God and that's important to us as well. Spend time with God, and He will reveal Himself through His Word by the prompting of the Spirit. And, and you too will know and understand the hidden treasures that we have in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the book of Job. We thank You for the truths contained therein. Thank You, Father, that we can rest on those same truths. We thank you for, for the astonishing truth that Job understood that he would stand before you in his own body and he would see you because his Redeemer would stand on the earth in the latter day. So Father, help us to, to dishonor and respect you and to be as Job was, a trusting servant and one to whom you can give many things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.